Thanks, Lynn. I don't know what I'm more afraid of when I hear Lynn Stringfellow is going to introduce me at a conference or Stormont's cooties on this microphone. Uh, both are scary today. Um, let me tell you guys a story. I, I went and interned in Tampa uh, initially in the campus ministry when I first became a Christian and decided I wanted to jump into ministry full-time. From there, I went to uh, Bible college and got a Bible degree. From there, I moved to San Francisco, California uh, to work with the struggling congregation to plant a campus ministry at San Francisco State University. Uh, I was full of vim and vigor and a lot of hubris and pride, thinking this city is uh, spiritually, you know, it's a, it's a bad place, but we're going to be fine because we got Jesus with us, right? And so I went over there with my wife and our young family, and my first Bible study that I had in San Francisco was with a, a gentleman, not his real name, but we'll call him Frank. Uh, my friend Paul, that was my ministry partner out there, had developed a relationship with this person, and, and this person wanted to get right with God. And so uh, Frank wanted to come and study the Bible with Paul and I. So Paul and I got together in his living room, and we sat and studied the Bible with this fella for uh, over the course of about six weeks. Now, what I didn't mention is that Frank is six foot three. Uh, he is a 65-year-old man who is transitioning into a woman. He has had every surgery except for the final surgery to remove his penis uh, surgically and turn it into a vagina. Uh, so he had breast augmentation and all that stuff, wore women's clothing, sat down when he peed, the whole deal. But this is the guy that's coming, and, and he's wanting to get right with God. Now, as I learned Frank's story, I found out that Frank um, grew up in a Catholic home. He was sexually molested by his father. He was sexually molested by his uncle. He was sexually molested by his Catholic priest. He ended up on the street when he was 12 years old. He ran away from home to get away from all the abuse, ran to Las Vegas, where he prostituted himself on the street to other men his entire teenage life. So from the age of 12 all the way up till about the age of 20, Frank lived on the street. He was addicted to crack. Uh, he did all kinds of anything you can think of sexually for money. He felt like a complete and utter piece of trash. I don't know how, he never told me, but somehow he got off the streets in his 20s and he ended up going to college and he got a degree in accounting. He ended up getting married to a woman. He had three children, two daughters and one son with this woman. What his wife didn't know was that he had this horrible struggle with homosexuality and during their marriage, he continued to act out on that uh, behind her back. He was going and sleeping with men. This went on for almost 20 years. By the time this uh, affair, after affair, after affair, finally he, it caught up with him. He got caught by his wife over time, multiple times. She eventually left him. Frank's decision to transition into a woman uh, was based on his faith. Remember, he had grown up in a Catholic household. He had been taught that God does not accept uh, people that practice homosexuality. That is not a behavior that is okay with God. That's sinful behavior. So Frank's reason for getting the surgery to become a woman was to get God to love him. Because in his mind, if he could get away from homosexuality, he would be right with God. He was basically a good guy. That was just the one thing, right? So the way I'm gonna do this is through surgery. Now, I'm fresh out of Bible college. I'm fresh out of Bible college. I'd studied the Bible with some people before. We had studied the Bible with a lot of college students. You know, they didn't teach me how to deal with a guy like Frank in Bible college when I went out to San Francisco. This was the first guy that I'm studying with. Guys, I didn't look down on him because of the struggle. 
Like I had never struggled with that thing, like that particular issue that he had, but I didn't look down on him. I wanted to help this guy learn about the full life that he was missing, that he was looking for in all the wrong places. And so, man, there was a, there was a lot of prayer as we were studying over the course of six weeks with this guy, there was a lot of prayer. There were a lot of conversations where I'm calling people that are wiser than me. Like, how do you deal with this? Have you ever heard of anything like this? And honestly, most of the people that I talked to that were ministers for 40 years, most of them were like, yeah, we don't know. We don't know what to do, right? And so I'm a young kid in my 20s trying to figure this out so I can help this 65-year-old man who's having this horrible struggle with sin get right with Jesus. Like, how do you do this? And so where we landed, Paul and I, through prayer and through Bible study and really trying to handle this right, you know, we, we came back to Frank, and, and in the course of our study, we were like, Frank, this plan that you have, like his plan was he wanted to get baptized, and then he wanted to have his final surgery, and then he wanted to go find a man to be married to. That was his plan. We had to go to him and be like, Frank, we, you can't do that. Look, here's, here's some principles in Scripture where even if you have the surgery, you're still a man because it says in the Bible, God created them male and female, like, we don't get to choose. You're, you are what you are. Uh, also, there's these passages in, in this teaching in the scripture about practicing homosexuality. And, and God doesn't condemn your orientation or your struggle. He condemns the practice. So you can't practice this anymore. You can't go be married to a man. Like, that's not, you're, you can't be right with God and do that. And, and we, we shared this, guys, as gently as we could. We had a relationship with the guy. We, we spent time with the guy. We did all the things right, quote unquote, in terms of reaching out to this guy. But you want to know what Frank's response was to us when we gave him that news? You are small-minded. You are bigoted. I can't believe you would be so unkind to me that you wouldn't just accept me the way that I am, the way that God made me. I can't believe you guys are, are being so mean to me. I, I can't stick around here. And Frank took off. And I'd like to tell you that there was a better ending to the story, but guys, there wasn't. Frank rejected the gospel. And as far as I know, uh, he never changed his viewpoint on that. And the next day after that final study, he went and got that surgery to have his penis removed like, because that was how he was going to connect with the Lord. But does anybody in here, do you like it when people think you're unkind? Do you like that label? Do you like it when people think you're bigoted? Do you like it when people think you're mean? Does anybody in here like that? Okay, if you do, you got a problem, right? You've got a problem. None of us like that. We want to be thought of as kind. We, we want to fit in, right? This is yes, this is no, right? We want to fit in, don't we? Right? We do. It's natural. But there's a problem, guys. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's one of those things that you're going to have to lay down. Because the truth is, uh, there is no fitting in when you're a disciple. The truth is, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be in conflict with the world. My experience with Frank in San Francisco is kind of a, a microcosm of uh, my experience with the world. 
And, and the nice thing is not everybody's story ends like Frank's does. There's a lot of people that do respond positively to the gospel. There's a lot of people that respond positively uh, to becoming a disciple of Jesus and all of the things that are caught up in that. But then there's other people, and I would say the vast majority of people, some who actually get close to investigating what it looks like to follow Jesus, and some who just maybe look from afar that are anything but positive in their reaction to that. Guys, there's the vast majority of the world does look at Christians like they're small-minded. The vast majority of the world does look at Christians like they're bigoted, like they're mean, like they're backwards. That's the world. And it's always been that way. And what moral compromise is, you know, the, the title of this lesson has to do with giving in the moral compromise. What moral compromise is, all it is, is lowering God's standard a little bit. That's all it is. And when you lower God's standard, the only reason that we lower God's standard, we're not there yet, boys. The only reason we lower God's standard is simply because we want to fit in. That's why we do it. It's because we want to fit in. So today's question is, how can I avoid giving in to the temptation to, to moral compromise? I'm going to give you four principles from our text that we looked at, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. The first one, is if I'm to avoid moral compromises, number one, I need to remember that Jesus is the ultimate authority and the Bible is his word. Jesus is the ultimate authority and the Bible is his word. It says in Revelation 2.12 to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Right there, why is the why are they where's there this allusion to the sword and Jesus? Isn't Jesus a nice guy? Well, yeah, guys, the allusion to the sword here is Jesus's words have authority. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as one with authority. Now, the, the church in Rome, they were under Roman rule, Rome had authority. In fact, Pergamum was uh, the seat of the proconsul in their re region. That just meant a guy that was really high up in the government who had the power to execute people at will. He had a sword. Jesus says, my sword's bigger. My sword is final. My sword is ultimate. He has authority. You guys have heard this point rep repeated over and over. Jesus' words matter. Have you guys gotten that message loud and clear since you've been at the CMU workshop? Jesus's words matter. Guys, the Bible is God's word. It is not God. We are not bibliolatrists. We do not worship the Bible, but the Bible is a window through which you can see God. The Bible was given to you by God because God didn't want you going through life like a five-year-old playing with a hand grenade. He gives you insight. When you open up the Bible, you're opening up the mind of God. Why do we on Sunday mornings preach from the Bible? Because God's word has authority. It impacts our lives. It impacts your life. When God speaks, you better listen up because his words matter. And whenever God speaks, he doesn't speak flippantly. He doesn't just have small talk that doesn't matter. If it's in the scriptures, Every single word in there matters, and we need to pay attention to it, right? Now, his word has authority now. His word had authority then. But did you know the people in Rome didn't believe that? 
Did you guys realize in Rome they did not believe the scriptures? Now, the Jews had been in citizens in Rome for a long time. They thought the Jews were crazy. The Romans thought that the Jews and the Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. See, the, the Romans actually believed in their gods. They believed that they had to sacrifice to their gods, and if you didn't sacrifice to their god, then that's why bad stuff would happen. The reason persecutions against the Jews and the Romans broke out, or against the Jews and the Christians, rather, broke out in Rome was precisely because of the Roman belief that if we have a loss in battle or if there's an earthquake or if there's a natural disaster, that kind of stuff only happens when the gods are mad. And the gods only get mad when we're not doing what we should for the gods. So if there's a segment of our population that's not sacrificing to the gods or making the gods happy, we need to go kill them and that's gonna make the gods happy, right? For a Christian not to sacrifice or a Jew not to sacrifice, the Romans thought that was unkind and unloving because you're putting our people in danger, right? They didn't believe the scriptures. They didn't believe what the scriptures said. Guys, did you know people today don't believe the scriptures in our country? Did you know that? Just a couple of days ago, Gallup, uh, the polling organization, came out with a new study on July the 6th, just a couple of days ago, 20%, only 20% of the people in the United States believe the Bible is the literal word of God. The vast majority of people think it's a book of fables and fairy tales that was man-made. Now that number has gone down from the 80s. It was, it was over half the country believes the Bible is the literal word of God. In just a few short years, guys, we've gone down to 20%, and that number is going to keep going down. Our country has lost its mooring in terms of the way we look at the Bible. Guys, we should not be surprised by that. I'm surprised it was higher earlier, right? Uh, the world is going to hate us. If you guys want a book uh, that talks about some of this stuff that's really well done, I encourage you to go get Dick's uh, book over here called, what's, it, what's the title of it? Ships Without Rudders. Um, go check that out. What that book is, is it is a five and a half year project that Mr. Clay did uh, that is super duper well researched. But, but one of the main themes in his book is that we have got to get back to the word of God. If you're a campus minister or somebody looking for a resource, I encourage you to go check that out. I agree with, with everything that I read and I read it cover to cover, it's really good. But one of the big problems in our country, guys, is people do not believe the word of God. They do not believe that Jesus's word is authoritative. They do not believe the Bible is authoritative. If you ever let that idea get into your heart, that's how you're going to get moving toward moral compromise. You have got to see, this, this is foundational. Like the Bible has got to be foundational to your worldview if you're going to be right, okay? Secondly, if I'm to avoid moral compromise, number two, I need to know, I've got to remember Jesus knows where I live and expects faithfulness. Jesus knows where I live and expects faithfulness. It says in Revelation 2.13, I know where you live. This is Jesus talking to the church in Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's what Jesus says to this church. Pergamum uh, was, uh, I believe, one of the, uh, actually it was, center, it was central to the imperial cult. Now, if you don't know what the imperial cult is, where it says uh, the throne of Satan is there, uh, the imperial cult in the first century 
was worship of the Roman emperors as deities. So some of them, whenever they would die, they would be deified. There's a couple of them, even while they were alive, they were deified. And guys, again, the Romans really believed in their religion. When they said something was a god, they actually believed it. It wasn't just like a, a fable or something to the average person on the street. They actually believed it was true. And they believed if you didn't sacrifice to this person or to this God, our society is going to get in trouble. Uh, and so what they would do for the imperial cult is they had a statue set up to, of the emperor. And all you had to do is go take a little pinch of incense and throw it in this bowl where it smoke up. And you'd say something like, Caesar is Lord and go on about your merry way. That's all you had to do, okay? The problem was the Christians didn't believe Caesar is Lord. Who did the Christians believe is Lord? Jesus, right? Now you believe that in your heart of hearts and then somebody comes along and they want you to, you know, if, if something's a Lord, you only get one Lord. There's only one master, right? You don't got more than one. Somebody comes along and, and you're a Christian in, the, in that in that society, and they say, now you got to say Caesar's Lord, what would you have to do in order to say that? You'd have to lie. You'd have to lie. Guys, guess what some people did? They lied. Why? Because of the pressure they felt. You know what would happen to you if you didn't say Caesar is Lord? They would very likely kill you. And that is exactly what happened to this fella named Antipas? Um, he's mentioned here. He says, yeah, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Guys, they put Antipas, as best we can tell, in a copper bowl, and they heated it up with the fire until he died. And there are all kinds of just horrible stories I could tell you about martyrdom Rome got creative when it came to killing people. I mean, they just did some really wacky stuff sometimes. I mean, they would, man, they would take families and they would have like a mom dress up as a historical figure and like kill her kids as part of a play. And she had to do it. Otherwise they'd make her death even worse or they'd kill the kids. Like they had, and then they'd kill her, right? Or they'd dress people up in animal skins and throw them out in the arena. And they would release like lions to come out and tear them apart because they were dressed up like sheep. You know, stuff like that, just for entertainment. You want to talk about a different world. Like the stuff they would do to people. And all you had to do to avoid that kind of fate is just say Caesar is Lord. Guys, do you want to know what the early Christians thought that, about that? What would Antipas have thought? You know, or Storm at rep, uh, referenced Polycarp earlier. Polycarp's another guy. He's just like, man, I'm not, I'm not giving in to this culture. I'm going to get up here, and, and if it costs me my life, I'm going to do it. Antipas, guys, whenever they come to him and, and say, uh, you know, make this sacrifice to Caesar, I got to think if I were Antipas, guys, does God love the Romans? You guys, just checking your theology here. Does God love the Romans? Does God love lost people? Okay, if you are God's disciple, if you are a disciple of Jesus in a society like that, how are those lost people ever going to learn about God? How are they ever going to learn about God? I've got to think for Antipas, he's got all this pressure, but as a, you know, potentially leader in the church, I don't really know too much about him outside of this reference. 
But I got to think just in my own heart, if I were in that situation, I like to think that I would be thinking about that crowd. If I'm really in this situation where I could potentially lose my life, like, yes, I could give in. Yes, I could fit in. Yes, I could lie and go about my merry business, but I'm going to know that I lied to these people that Jesus loves. And how are they going to know about him if we don't have some people that stand up and express this? And I'm not going to force my view on them. Like, I'm not going to get a megaphone and stand up and scream at them. Like, I'm not going to go on their campus and make a, just make a, a big scene. And you guys have seen those guys. Super effective, right? No. <laughs> right? I'm not going to be like that. But if they press me, I, I need to say something. Like, if they put me in a situation where I have to give an answer, I need to give an honest answer. I got to think, man, Antipas and these other martyrs, man, a lot of them, they're thinking about the people in the crowd. Guys, you know what happened in the first century about after a bunch of these martyrdoms? You know what happened? A lot of those people started looking into Christianity because they're like, why are these nuts going and jumping in fires? Like, what is so great about this Jesus guy that these people would be willing to give, give up their lives? Like, it's the church. You know the history, right? Like, the whole country ended up later sort of going the other direction. Now, they went places we don't like, right? But what a contrast. You go from killing the disciples in the first century through the second century through the third century. Then in the 300s, the emperor of that empire has this experience where he is now claiming faith, and you have a whole different emphasis, right? What a, what a change. That change came about because of those people standing up for their faith. For their faith. But guys, understand, Jesus knew the times. Jesus knew the culture. Jesus knew where they lived, and he expected faithfulness from them. You think they're their times were bad. You know, if we talk about Rome, we can talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. Guys, our times. Look at how the Bible describes our times. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Do you guys know the Bible said that? So by the way, when it talks about the last times, that's our times. We're living in the last times. This is a description of our world, right? Look at, it goes on and talks about teachers a little bit later too in 2 Timothy 4. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 
as this is talking about our world. Did you know if you don't like something that a church teaches, you can just go up the road to another one? If there's some hot button issue that you just have a problem with, like you like Jesus, but you want to live this other lifestyle that, that maybe you just go find a church that says it's okay. You can find them. They're everywhere. I predict that in our lifetimes, there are going to be more churches that are on the other side of the line when it comes to some of these basic biblical doctrines than there are churches that are teaching the Bible. I'll bet you we'll see that in our lifetimes. Let me tell you, whether that happens or not, Jesus knows the time that you live in. Jesus knows the culture that you live in. Jesus knows the pressures that you face at work, that you face at school, that you face in your family. Jesus knows all of that, and Jesus expects faithfulness. But guess what the world is going to think about you? Everybody wants to be cool. We want to fit in. We want to be liked. Guys, the vast majority of the world is going to say, you are closed-minded, you are, you are bigoted, you are hateful. That's what the world is going to say. And guess what, guys? Jesus' word to us, I think when, when you're thinking through this, Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I want to fit in. I want to be cool. I want to be like Jesus Christ. Says the way is narrow, man. The way is narrow. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate you because of me. I'm a polarizing figure. People in your own family. I'm going to cause conflict in your own family. Mother's going to turn against daughter. Father's going to turn against son. I'm going to be a polarizing figure. That's what Jesus says. But he knows where you live. But we've got to be faithful. Thirdly, if I'm to avoid moral compromise, number three, I've got to remember that Jesus is intolerant of false teaching in the church. Jesus is intolerant of false teaching in the church. False teaching is what leads to moral compromise a lot of the time. Uh, now, in Revelation 2, 14 and 15, this is uh, Jesus talking. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, he says, there are some among you. I want you to pay attention to that. There are some among you. He's talking to a church. He doesn't say that all of you. He says there are some among you. That means there's a segment of this church that holds to uh, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Balaam, you need to know a little bit of Old Testament to know who he is. He shows up around Numbers 25 through 31, I think. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, 2 Peter 2, 15 and Jude 11. Balaam was a false teacher that uh, led the Israelites into sin. The Nicolaitans are a group that, uh, something called antinomianism, which basically uh, they taught that uh, grace was abundant 
and you could sin kind of as much as you wanted to. It didn't really matter. Uh, there was this dualism, kind of this difference between physical and spiritual. And I don't want to get into all that. It was something called Gnosticism, right? It was a false teaching. It basically gave people license to sin. And so it wasn't the whole church, but there was a, a segment of the church that was involved in this, that was spreading this teaching. Now, false teaching, if you go study the, the first century church, it was a big problem. They had teachers going from town to town. You had the Jewish version teaching, uh, you know, call them Judaizers, but then you also had this Gentile version, which was a lot of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is just a mix of a lot of things, a lot of religions together where they made their own religion and it, it led people into sin. Um, some in this church were likely attending pagan worship feasts which they may have had to attend for their, for their jobs. Like if you were a merchant, you had to join a merchant guild to do business. And if you were part of the guilds, you had to go to some of these feasts if you were gonna be part of the guild. Sometimes at these feasts, when they were serving this food, they would say things like, this God is present here with us. This is a spiritual meal. We're taking some of this God's power into ourselves. It was kind of this dark thing. Sometimes they would do like ritual orgies and stuff, depending on the God drunkenness, all kinds of uh, revelry and things like that, stuff Christians weren't supposed to do. Well, I got to go there for work, right? That seems like a good excuse. No, man. Like there's certain things that are just black and white in the Bible. Who, remember guys, Jesus's word matters, right? He's got the authority, right? There are certain things that are just black and white that we don't want to mess around with. When you start messing around with stuff that is black and white in the scriptures and, and kind of fudging on that, you're going to get yourself into trouble. And guys, this is something as ministers and church leaders and guys running campus ministries and churches, what's interesting to me in this passage, it, just, it says there's some of you. It doesn't say the whole church. It doesn't say the whole ministry. It just says there's a section, there's a segment. What that tells me is if I'm a church leader, I better make sure there's not a segment when it comes up with stuff like this. I'll tell you like, uh, for instance, what are some hot button issues today, okay, in our culture? Gender. The Bible says when you're created, God made them male and female. I've got people in my church that are professional teachers that have to go to class in Illinois, which we're not in Missouri. Illinois is a little bit uh, different culture. I don't know what you guys uh, deal with over here. I know you guys have furries over here, right? You know what furries are, okay? So, so you go to class and there's a girl dressed as a cat licking her paw in class because she's a cat. And you're trying to teach a dang class and there's some kid smacking, licking her paw. You can't, as a teacher, tell that kid to cut that out because the government has told you that's her identity. That's just stupid to me. You know, I, I mean, that's stupider than the, I'm, you know, I'm born a boy and I'm going to be a girl kind of thing. But it's just, it's like pathologically crazy. But guys... That kind of stuff right there, what, what you see in like Illinois and California and places, well, you just wait 10 years. It's going to be in the, in the other places too, right? Um, to me, that's black and white. Like, 
you just can't mess around. You know, abortion is one of those things. That's just black and white. Like the Bible says, life is sacred. I have enough friends who have had abortions that I know that, you know, it kills the child, obviously. It also kills the spirit of the woman who has it done. It kills the spirit of the man who enables that. That's black and white to me, right? Marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's black and white to me. Marriage is sacred. Guys, cohabitation, getting, you know, playing house before you're married. You're getting into trouble when you do that. That doesn't honor God. Um, we, could, we could go on. We could make a list, right? Uh, we could talk about nationalism if you're a Republican. Guess what? God's not an American citizen. He does not think your country is exceptional. You're just another pagan country, right? There are going to be things, though, that are black and white in the scriptures that there's going to be cultural pressure to fit in on. And guys, when I was talking to my friend Frank, if I had told Frank that it was okay for him to continue living as a woman and get married to a man, that would have been super unkind for me to do that to Frank. For Antipas and these people in, in the Roman times, for them to tell the Romans that, yeah, Caesar's Lord, let me sneak off over here, that would have been super unkind for him to tell that crowd, Caesar is Lord. Super unkind. You are going to be put into situations in your classrooms, in your workplaces, and around your own kitchen table sometimes with your families where you are going to be pressed on something that you believe and you are going to have to make a choice. Am I going to do what's easy to fit in? Or am I going to take a risk and potentially be labeled as unkind? Is, do any of us want to be labeled as unkind? No. The people I know that give in to the temptation, some of the most compassionate, kind-hearted people I know, but guys, if the Bible is the word of God, if Jesus is the final authority, is it really kind for me to steer them away from what he says? That's not kind. It's unkind. In fact, it's self-centered and self-serving because you're not even thinking about the soul of that person. You're just thinking about yourself. And that was the dilemma in the first century. Guys, there were a lot of people that were put in situations where they were going to be martyred and they took the, they took the route out. They got to keep their lives. That was the easy way. That's a temptation. We don't even face that. We just face getting made fun of or getting ostracized, right? We don't even have to risk as much. This should be challenging to us. 
Let's go ahead and hit that fourth point. Number four, if I'm to avoid moral compromise, I've got to remember that Jesus has the final word. Jesus has the final word. Jesus's closing word to the church in Pergamum is repent. Repent, therefore. You've got this segment that is following after this false teaching. You need to take care of that. You need to make sure that you guys are not misrepresenting me to this lost world because I love this lost world. You are my letter to this lost world. You need to represent me correctly in this lost world. You need to honor my word. He says, repent. Repent in the Greek, metanoia, change and mind. Literally means change of mind. It means you change your mind where you start seeing things the way God sees them. If you start to see your sin the way God sees your sin, you will turn away from your sin because God does not look on your sin with pleasant eyes. God sees your sin for what it is. It is deadly. It is poison. It will kill you. When we look at sin, sometimes we see a fluffy bunny because we're looking through our human eyes, right? We need to look at our sin the way God looks at our sin. We repent. We turn away from it. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know what that means, but if it's from Jesus, it does not sound like it would be good, right? This is, this is, this is the Jesus coming in glory. He came as a baby in humility. He's coming back in glory, guys. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he's coming back in glory. This temptation to moral compromise was driven by this desire to fit in. But guys, again, we will not fit in with the culture if we're following Jesus. I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you got that. We will not fit in with the culture if we're following Jesus. Do I need to repeat that again? We will not fit in with the culture if we're following Jesus. You will not. Word up. You will not. We shouldn't expect to. Matthew 10, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Who does he say? How many? Everyone. That sounds like a lot of people. Who wants to be hated by everyone? Not me. You want to follow Jesus, this is what you're signing up for. You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to the other. Don't be afraid of them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He just told you, you better be scared of God because the Romans may roast you in a copper bowl. They may kill you in an arena. They may feed you to lions, but they cannot kill your soul. But I can. That's what Jesus says. If you ever grew up with a, a loving but firm dad that he was nice and compassionate, but if you got out of line, all he had to do is start to take his belt off, right? As soon as you saw the belt buckle unbuckling, you changed your behavior. You did not want that belt to come off because if that belt came off, it was not going to be good for you. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's looking at you 
And he's saying, you are going out into a world that is going to hate you. Everybody's going to hate you. If you follow me, you're going to have a rough life. There's going to be a rough go. And they might even kill you. But guess what? And he starts taking that belt off. They can't kill your soul, but I can. That sounds a little crass, guys. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's we fear becoming his enemy. We want to be on the right side of God. The way you're on the right side of God is to look at what God says and do what God says and honor God's word. And it's to love that lost world that isn't doing it because that's true for you. He can kill the soul. He can do that for them too. And guys, if they don't understand what's at stake, they're going through life blinded. The kids on your campus, guys, they have no idea the life that they're missing. They have no idea the life that God has in store for them. And the only people on that campus sometimes might be you that is going to have any way of influencing their decision about that stuff. If you are quiet, if you just try to fit in, guys, I'm not saying go out on your campus and start being a religious jerk. We don't need another one of those. What I am saying is you be bold about what you believe. And when you're put in situations where you can give a little bit of input about what you believe, be bold in that. Don't be a wuss. Grow a pair. It's okay, we can say that. Gender doesn't matter, right? Some of that just sunk in for some of you guys. Good grief. Seriously, you need to be bold. You need to get out there and be bold. Don't be afraid, don't be a sissy. Whenever we read the book of Revelation and we run across these stories about these martyrs, guys, these were not sissies. The church exploded in growth over the course of this time because people were bold Jesus has the final word. Let me end with this. 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Guys, that white stone was given uh, to give food allocations in the first century. It was also given to signify at a court case an acquittal. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you your reward. If you will run this race faithfully, guys, there is a reward waiting for you. And the only thing you can bring with you to that new place that I'm going to prepare for you, the only thing you can bring with you is other people. Word up. The only way you're going to bring other people is if you don't compromise on what God says. And if you're bold Don't make fitting in your goal, guys. Make honoring Jesus with your whole life your goal. Word up.